Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 61. The road to hell is paved with works in progress. Philip Roth. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my indie film hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Don't forget to head over to freefilmbook.com. That's freefilmbook.com to download your free film audiobook from Audible. And today's show is sponsored by Screenwriting and Story Blueprint, The Hero's Two Journeys, taught by the legendary Michael Haig and Chris Volger, our guest today, which I'll get to in a minute. You can head over to indiefilmhustle.com forward slash story blueprint. That's indiefilmhustle.com forward slash story blueprint. And it is on sale for 19 bucks until April 4th. So hurry. So guys, I want to welcome you to a very special episode, a uh, special episode to me because today we have on the show, Chris Vogler. Uh, Chris is the writer of the writer's journey, uh, an integral and amazing part of um, my development as a storyteller. Uh, this book kind of changed my life. I read it when I was in college 20-odd years ago. And basically, he takes the works of Joseph Campbell, uh, The Hero's Journey, and translates it for um, filmmakers. And he worked at Disney for about almost 10 years. Uh, he was there while he was uh, while they were making Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and all these kind of, um, you know, the, the pinnacle of of Disney's power, and now they're they're going through another renaissance right now. But then uh, he actually kind of changed the game when he wrote this amazing memo, uh, telling everybody what every story had: the hero's journey. And uh, if you haven't heard about the hero's journey or have not heard that concept before, um, definitely sit back and relax and, and take a listen to what Chris is going to talk about, and also uh, take a look at that course uh, that he and Michael wrote screenwriting and story blueprint the hero's two journeys so without further ado i'm not going to yap anymore just let's get into it with chris vogler so chris uh thank you so much for being on the show we really appreciate you taking out the time i'm very glad to be here glad to talk to you so so you know just so everybody knows in the audience i read chris's book the writer's journey um uh, i don't want to date anybody but over 20 years ago <laughs> and uh it definitely changed the way I look at story. So for that, I thank you very much, sir. Hey, you're welcome. Yeah, I was a very, so uh, very young, youthful author. Very youthful. You must be with, yeah, uh, 30 right. now. So you did it when you were yeah, 10. Right. Fantastic that's work. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so um, how did you start in the film business? 
Well, I had a, a path that led me through journalism school first uh, back in Missouri, where I'm from. And then um, I got into the Air Force, and they sent me out to Los Angeles. I was lucky. It was the middle of the Vietnam War. And uh, instead of going to Vietnam, they sent me to uh, L.A. And uh, I worked for an outfit that made documentary films about the space program and so forth. And after that, I got to uh, go to film school on the GI Bill and uh, went to the USC school. And, and that's really where things came into focus for me because I encountered the work of this man, Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Hero with mm -hmm. a Thousand Faces and was a big influence on uh, uh, George Lucas and many others. Um, and, and that kind of, you know, uh, focused me on my quest to find out what stories were all about. So uh, that, and also there was a class at school that was important called Story Analysis for Film and TV, and that was like a career pathway for me because it, it mm -hmm. showed me that, you know, thinking critically and writing uh, about stories and reacting to things intelligently was, uh, you know, uh, uh, a way I could make, make a path for myself into the business. Now, what um, what about Joseph Campbell's work really kind of drew you drew you in, and and what was the revolutionary part of his work that kind of you know really sparked something in you? Well, as as a kid and just a pure consumer of uh, movies and TV from the Midwest, I grew up on a farm. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was, uh, you know, wonderful and mysterious to me how they sort of hypnotized me with these great images and all that. And I, I was on a quest. I was trying to figure out, I was looking for the book. Where's, where's the, 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 uh, the rules of this? Where's the physics of it? Where's the, where's the color chart or the periodic table or the, the theory, mm -hmm. uh, of, of how they do it. And, you know, I got to film school and I found out, well, there really isn't anything like that. Uh, and then just sort of by accident, I found the work of Campbell and, uh, he wasn't thinking about movies, but he had thought long and hard about mythology and these patterns he kept seeing about heroes and how that related to, you know, current findings in psychology, especially the work of uh, Freud, but more Carl Jung, uh, mm -hmm. the Jungian school. So he was combining the patterns of old mythology with modern psychology and kind of handing it back to us and saying, okay, here's, here's what's hidden inside all these stories, advice for how to live. And that turned out, I thought to be a great blueprint for uh, telling stories and communicating with an audience. So that was my, my breakthrough about it. Now, can you talk a little bit about what the hero's journey is? Yeah. You know, this is uh, a pattern um, that Campbell found in uh, the ancient myths. He kept seeing the same sort of signposts over and over again. And uh, he had, you know, somewhere between 16 and 20 different uh, events, psychological mostly events, that would uh, occur in almost every story. Uh, I worked with a little, refined it down to 12 things. But the essence of it is, you know, everybody at some stage in their life has an ordinary world that they know, and then they're going to go into something new and different. And, and you know, a new relationship, new job, uh, a, a war starts, or a catastrophe happens, or a health crisis, whatever it is, you're going to be in a new world. And so it's about exploring that world and how 
the difficulties of it can almost kill you. That's sort of the essence of it. That this is you know change in life is dangerous, and it 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 can be threatening. But that can also change you and make you stronger and more resilient and uh, you know more uh, more alive and conscious and human. So that's uh, that's the the basic essence of it. People start in an ordinary world. They go out uh, you know either because they're itchy inside or they are uh, 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 being forced to it by outside circumstances and they explore something new. There's often a mentor who helps them. That's an important mm-hmm. part of it. The presence or absence of of somebody who can uh, guide you and be a, a role model, kind of. Um, but uh, you know that that's that's the essence of it. That you are transformed by an intense experience of of going through a change and, and entering a new stage of life, and you're not the same. You come out as a different person. So that's kind of the the essence of the idea. So would you agree that um, for people who are not familiar with the hero's journey, a great movie to illustrate this would be Star Wars, the original one, <clears throat> the episode four, The New Hope? Yeah, yeah, that that was, uh, you know, it's always been the easiest uh, way to show where the signposts are because mm-hmm. George Lucas was very conscious of Campbell's work. He had read about it even before film school. Uh, he was aware mm-hmm. of Campbell because he had, you know, studied anthropology and various other things, and um, and and found Campbell that way, and and had the same, I think, insight I did that, gee, this would be great for uh, plotting stories and, and giving them a little bit of this mythological uh, resonance and psycho- psychological reality. So um, yeah, it's it's easy to see the signposts because he made them big. He made all of the turning points mm-hmm. very clear. Uh, and obvious, you know, the the, the pattern calls for uh, a call to adventure, and there's the uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. The literal, you're, you're, the literal call for adventure. Calls. Yeah, there's literally right. this call. To, you know, everything is literal like that. Uh, there's supposed to be the handing off of some kind of relic of the past uh, that that's going to guide you and help you. And so he gets his father's lightsaber from Obi Wan Kenobi. Mm-hmm. There's supposed to be a mentor. There's Obi Wan Kenobi, uh, and so forth. You know, when they when they come to the um, to the cantina, uh, that's a, a typical situation in these stories. That you go to a bar or a saloon or a watering hole or something, and uh, you find out what the new world is like, and then boom, you take off. And, and that's an important part of the pattern, too, that, that sense in the audience that we know there's some preparation that needs to be done to meet the hero and figure out what the problems are, but then we want mm-hmm. the story to, boom, take off. And uh, that should happen, you know, ideally maybe 20 minutes or so into the film, half an hour in maybe, but uh, right. it's going. When he, jumps on, when he jumps on the Millennium Falcon. Basically, yeah. When they go off, it's it's very very clear. And you know, there's there's uh, other things too that I I think sure. make it easy to see the yearning of the hero. You know, when he looks out at the twin sons on the planet, you know, he mm-hmm. just wants to get out there and you know, but he's stuck. He's a farm boy. But then, boom, this uh, rush of events takes over, and then mm-hmm. he meets all kind of monsters, and you know, uh, almost dies a couple of times, and that's uh, that's par for the course on this, uh, this hero's journey deal. Now, can you break down, um, at least just give a basic understanding for people who don't understand the basic three act structure and how that might yeah. also translate into a trilogy as well? Like, cause I know I'm going to use star Wars again, you know, star, the new hope right. empire and return all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, you know, uh, there's a, a beautiful thing uh, going on with all of this uh, current study that people are doing of story structures and narrative and so on, which is um, at, at first my competitors and I, who were uh, doing seminars and workshops and writing books, uh, all mm-hmm. hated each other and, and were jealous <laughs> of And then, you know, and, and said, that other guy's system is stupid and mine is the only one that works. You know, that was right. normal uh, procedure. But we got over that and we all mostly realized we're all talking about the same thing and it's human and it's kind of hardwired. So these things beautifully start to overlap and, you know, sort of parallel to my 12 stage pattern is something called the three act structure, which was really pioneered by a man named Sid field, who is a wonderful man. Of course. Last year or so. And, uh, uh, was a, a real pioneer because he laid out this unwritten rules of storytelling that he uh, sort of put together as what they call the paradigm of uh, three-act structure. And there's nothing all that earth-shakingly new about it, but just like my idea with the hero's journey, uh, this can be traced back easily to at least Aristotle, uh, who talked right. about, you know, you need a beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, the, the energy, I think, of, is, is what's important to grasp about the, stru- the three-act structure. It's, to use a metaphor, it's like uh, drawing a bow. You know, you're, you're, you're pulling back in the first act. You're, you're loading that bow up with energy. And then you're taking aim in the second act and uh, dealing with the wind and all the other challenges. Uh, and then you fire it. And in the third act, and your intention or the situation of the hero, you know, finally goes to some kind of target and either hits or misses, you know. And if it misses, it's a tragedy. And if it's a hit, then, you know, you've got a right. happy, happy ending. So, uh, you know, that's one way to to look at it. And there's, you know, many metaphors that you could you could use on this, but uh that, but but that's a, a good one. That that you're you're gathering energy, you're building tension, mm-hmm. then you're uh, you know really zeroing in on critical things, and then uh, sort of launching the whole thing in the final act, and that overlaps no, no. with my okay. pattern. Yeah. So like a movie like Pulp Fiction, which does it has. Uh, it's a very unique structure. Can you kind of break down because it, it, it's genius because it follows the hero's journey in its own structural way. If, am, yeah, am I it, wrong in that? or can you, can you break that down a little bit? No, um, I, you know, that's a really interesting and challenging one to analyze mm-hmm. because it's so ambitious, first of all. Uh, those guys, uh, the, the writers of that, were, were trying to uh, uh, Roger Avery and, and uh, Tarantino were, were trying to deconstruct things and tell multiple stories, and that's very challenging, and they chose to do them out of sequence and, and you know, uh, play around with our expectations of what, what will happen mm-hmm. in order, you know, and, and that's refreshing, but you can undeconstruct it. You can reconstruct it uh, and, and sort of lay it out in a linear way, and it's, it's a very, in some ways, conventional uh, mm-hmm. storytelling that they're, that they're doing. The heroes, on all the different threads of the story, have an ordinary world. They all go through some kind of drastic challenge and change and enter into you know some new situation uh and and again they either hit or they miss i mean that's the the beautiful thing especially about the main story uh with uh, john travolta 
and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and Sam Jackson and and, and Samuel Jackson uh, is is that it, it, one of them Tarantino sees this they have this miracle happen where they're supposed to all be shot to pieces in uh, in a in a drug shootout and uh, miraculously Sam Jackson says they're, they're missed and he says that's that's a clear sign from God we were spared for a purpose and so I, my life has changed now. And Travolta says, hey, that was just a coincidence. It doesn't change anything. And, uh, you know, the, the story sort of sits in judgment of those guys. And at the end, the writers give Samuel Jackson eternal life and, and say, you, you're going to go on and be like uh, uh, the guy in Kung Fu who travels around, right. yeah, who travels around righting wrongs and doing good in a nice uh, Zen kind of way, uh, doing little harm and little bloodshed. And Travolta is killed getting off the John. You know, he's, he, he jumps off the, <laughs> the, the toilet and uh, Bruce Willis shoots him to death. So, uh, Spoiler alert. The story, yeah, <laughs> the story, the story uh, the, the writers, you know, sit in God's chair kind of and, and give their, their judgments on uh, how do you react to this new thing uh, that's in mm-hmm. the middle you know, in the, in the second act, the, the challenge, and, and then how does it land in, in, so to speak, the third act, although it's all messed up, you know, in the editing process. Consequentially, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, you can still make that kind of, of, of clear moral sense out of it. Now, in your opinion, what makes a good hero and a good villain? Uh, this is this is great. They're uh, sort of you know mirror images of of each other, uh, you mm-hmm. know, sort of reflections of each other. Uh, a good way to look at all the characters is that, in in some way, everybody else in the movie is like a another possibility of the hero. That that the even the love interest, male or female, is like your opposite side or your opposite possibilities. Uh, the the villain is the the dark possibility of you the the clowns uh and tricksters around you those are the the funny possible versions of you so uh, mm-hmm. the the villain is is some kind of mirror image first but what makes a, a good hero is somebody who's complex and they're broken somehow that seems to be really deeply essential in all the way back to the mythology <clears throat> is that the hero will be strong and powerful and you know maybe like hercules stronger than everybody else but he's got problems and and there's right. something broken or something wrong with him in, in his case it was uh, dealing with women and uh, sometimes he misjudged situations and and would go off on people or you know uh, caused a, a, a lot of problems because he was so impulsive so, uh, you know, all the way back in the mythology, this idea is planted that the, the hero is more believable and more human because they're imperfect. Uh, you know, it's With that said, I don't mean to interrupt you. I don't mean to interrupt you because I just wanted to make a real point here. Yeah. A good hero, like you said, are those flawed heroes. Is that one of the reasons why it's so difficult to write for a character like Superman, who's essentially a god, uh, with the movie coming out this weekend? Um, I was just curious on your take on that, like that specific character and how difficult sometimes it is to make those kind of characters work as a hero. Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly a very interesting uh, franchise to me, partly for those reasons, um, that it, it is, he's a mythological character. And as you say, he's got mm-hmm. some semi-divine uh, potential. Uh, I actually mm-hmm. was called in at one point 
by one of the studios to, uh, you know, sort of put Superman on the couch and shrink him and put him through my mythological process. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, this is, I think, at a point when they were trying to decide, are we going to do Batman versus Superman? This was many years ago. Um, mm-hmm. That was considered that th- th- this current film has a long, long history. Oh, yeah. But uh, they, uh, uh, you know, they asked me to sort of uh, shrink Superman, and it was all about the, the flaws and the limitations, uh, that, that that's what makes him interesting, is that uh, even though he's invulnerable most of the time, there's still conditions like uh, kryptonite and red and green kryptonite sure. that have different uh, effects on him. And then he's emotionally uh, kind of a train wreck in, in some ways. Uh, and that's, you know, charming that, that when he puts those glasses on, for some reason, uh, he becomes shy and bumbling and uh, mm-hmm. you know, can't say what he really thinks. And uh, it's just, you know, very, very easy to identify with. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of get the best of, of both worlds. It's a, a, a superhuman set of possibilities, but with some realistic limitations. And then... But that's know, why I think Batman... Well, yes. that, that's why, like, like, Bat, like, Batman is such a relatable character because people because people can identify with him. He's And he's more, much more popular than Superman um, yeah, it's, in many it's ways. Very, very interesting... Um, how we use these characters um, as meditation devices or something. And uh, we think through the stories uh, about, uh, you know, different developments. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a patriot? You know, you even look at the colors of Superman's costume or Batman's Mm -hmm. design, Mm -hmm. you know, his costume. And it, it just, you know, is sort of a, a mirror reflection of what's going on in society at the moment or what society thinks is important. So, uh, you know, Batman, for some reason, that one seems to be uh, a laboratory to experiment with uh, all kind of different kind of dark brooding thoughts. But but Mm -hmm. there's such a range within Batman that, that people can just turn the dial to comedy and, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. silly things and, and, and get a big kick out of it and even find meaning in it, uh, but then turn the dial the other way to Batman is a complete lunatic and, you know, a reflection of the nuttiness of our own society. So it, it's, it's really fun to see uh, how the writers do this, but also really how the consumers are, uh, are using it to figure stuff out. Uh, it's, it's, it's just entertainment. You know, they say it's just cotton candy for the mind, but Mm -hmm. uh, there's much more going on in even the the silliest things. And then, and you were continuing with the villain. What makes a great villain? Yeah, just, uh, I I think, uh, you know, very much along the same lines and the kind of fundamental that there should be, you know, uh, a lot of powers, but also limitations, and uh, especially when you are dealing with magical figures uh, who have, you know, vast magic powers, one of the things that helps is to make a rule, it costs something. That every time you do something bad um, or something magical, uh, it's not free. It, 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 it costs you something. You may lose you know, you may become partially, partially paralyzed. You might become blinded, you know, every time you use your x-ray vision or whatever. Um, and, and that just makes the game so much more interesting that he can do anything. Uh, 
And then for the kind of more everyday villains, I think it's useful to realize they don't think they're villains. They think the hero of your story is the villain. Uh, that mm-hmm. that they're, they're totally convinced they're right. Uh, they, uh, they have built, you know, their whole life is, is built around their uh, view of the world. And so, again, they're the mirror image of, of the hero. And when the hero is up, they're down. When the hero's happy, that doesn't make them happy, and vice versa. You know, they're, when they're happiest, the hero is the most miserable. So they they make diagrams, they make uh, waveforms, and they're they're perfect mirrors of, of each other. Sometimes um, they balance each then, other. They're the yin and the yeah, yang. Yeah, they balance each other. And and then there's the whole idea of archetypes, which is something I got out of uh, Campbell's work, you know, also from Carl Jung, who said inside everybody there is a cast of characters, basic characters, a mother, a father, a hero, uh, a villain, an angel, a devil, you know, all these kind of basic human possibilities. And uh, at, at first I thought, the villain is the villain and, and should be, you know, really mean and, and, and tough all the time. And the hero should be heroic all the time. Uh, and the mentor should be mentory all the time and so forth. Uh, but then I realized life ain't like that. And, and people have different masks that they wear. You know, maybe you wear 20 different masks in the course of one day. Uh, that you're a, a tough guy one minute and you're uh, a coward the next minute and you're a teacher one minute and, uh, you know, and so forth. So right. the, villains, the villains are wearing a mask, you know, most of the time of the villain, but there's other masks in there. And, and again, they, may, they can show kindness, they can, they can be heroic, they can uh, be a teacher to the hero, uh, you know, they can feel sorry for the hero and, uh, and almost spare the hero. All these things make them more interesting than just, ha I'm here to, you know, make your life hard. So, uh, so these, these shadings are what make it realistic and more fun. Now, the hero's journey has become... And it hasn't become, but I guess it is so relatable to so many people around the world, regardless of religion, society, language. Is that because it's just something that is hardwired into every human being, no matter where you come from? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, there are two things in operation here, and one of them is that I do make that assumption that um, in the course of evolving into human beings. Um, we created a whole bunch of structures like families, for instance, uh, and societies. Uh, we, we created these structures, and stories are one of those. That, that, you know, I think we actually grew a part of the brain that handles that, that allows you to think in metaphors and imagine people, you know, when somebody's just talking to you and saying, once upon a time there was a little girl, you somehow create that world and the little girl. And uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's all part of being human. But the other side of it is then you have millions and millions of examples of these things in the form of stories. And people are, are swimming in an ocean of stories in their lives. And mm-hmm. uh, even if it wasn't hardwired, we'd all be taught by Hollywood movies and TV and the myths and legends of our cultures. We'd all be taught uh, what are the basic rules of these things, and you know what is the what is the shape and the effect? But I, I go back to the first one that it's hardwired, 
because it seems that certain images and situations will very reliably trigger emotional and physical reactions in the audience. Uh, you know, things like people in trouble, people helping, you know, and sacrificing their own lives to help somebody else, uh, uh, somebody sneaking up behind you to threaten you. All those things get physical reactions, and uh, it's pretty reliable across cultures. So, so there's so, so would you agree that, and this is something I've always told people and let ask me about story. I'm like, well, if there was no story in the world, I don't think the human experience can move forward. Like just on a daily basis, how many times do you just tell the, well, how, how was your day at work? That's a story, right. you know, and all these kind of things. Do you, do you agree with that? Like without story, we, we, we just couldn't move forward. Yes, it would be a very different world. Um, you know, I, I suppose there is an engineering version of the world where, you know, everything would be expressed only as, uh, as uh, mathematical formulas or, or uh, <laughs> diagrams or something. But even that's a mm -hmm. metaphor, and a metaphor is telling some kind of a story. The world is made of numbers. You know, that's as much a, a story as, uh, as uh, Peter Pan. So... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think it's true because of the fact that it's it's just so hardwired into us. You know, people say, I, I remember this uh, uh, when Johnny Carson died. People, uh, a lot of people said, what's it like to be Johnny Carson? In other words, you couldn't really tell me how it was to be Johnny Carson, but what's it like you know, uh, to, and, and give me a metaphor. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like being the king, or it's like being on top of the world, or it's like being under a spot. Mm -hmm. All those are metaphors, and they tell little stories. So uh, we think in poetry and metaphors uh, just automatically, and it's so embedded in the language we don't even realize it. You know, like I just said, it's embedded in the language. Uh, and so right. I've created a metaphor that there's a, there's a, uh, a mass, and then inside that mass, like raisins inside a, uh, a loaf of bread, uh, there's embedded these, uh, these ideas. So, so these things are hard to escape, and you kind of can't see them because they're so dominant. But, uh, but now, you know, there's good things about it because it does allow us to communicate uh, and to get ideas across and convince people of things. Um, by telling it in the form of a story, as all politicians know very well, it's it's one thing to say, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's one thing to say the uh, the veterans are being mistreated, but it's much mm -hmm. better to say here's a veteran and this is what happened to him and look and he you know had all this sacrifice and now he's suffering, and and mm -hmm. so now wow that's a whole different level of uh, relationship and identification so. Oh. I see it. I see it with my my daughters who are four. Uh, how story impacts them, and how I'm using story now just to kind of relay core, uh, as as George Lucas said, the meat and potatoes of our society. Like, mm. you know, the the boy that cried wolf, don't lie. Yeah. You know, things like that. Um, it's so powerful and how these stories, like the Grim Tales and things like that, they just go on from generation to generation. And now the Disney stories and and the movies and stuff like that. Movies that I saw. When I was growing up, now I'm showing them to my girls, and right. and right. Star Wars is one of those, you know, kind of mythos. There's generate the new generations are catching up with that, you know, the stuff that we grew up with. Uh, younger, it's just fascinating to watch. Now, um, are 
are we all on our own hero's journey, basically? Yes, that's one of the biggest uh, insights I had. By the way, your daughters are very lucky because you're keeping up this ancient tradition and you're not outsourcing it to the the technological stuff. That's part of it, but introducing them to it and talking to them about it, reading the stories to them especially, uh, is, mm-hmm. uh, is, is critical. But yeah, it, I mean, that was the big insight from the very beginning. I said, wow. Uh, when I read Campbell's book at film school, I kind of skimmed through it. I'm a good skimmer, and I skimmed through it on the bus on the way home. And by the time I got off the bus, my whole life had been changed. And and one part of it was, yeah, this is great for making movies. This will make better, more entertaining, more international movies. But at the same time, I was aware this is a great guideline for living. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. it's a template. And, and it's, again, it's a metaphor. It's telling you a story. Once there was a person who, you know, uh, lived somewhere and they went someplace and it changed them. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, but it, it, it's, uh, it's just so clear to me that our ancestors thought it was important and they preserved it in the form of stories because it's your guidebook for life. Uh, for how to deal with the inevitable things. Things are going to come along and wreck your plan, uh, no matter mm-hmm. what that plan is. And so how do you deal with that? And the stories are just in, an infinite well of options and solutions and failures. You know, it, that too, examples of, uh, of, of tragic failures. So, uh, yeah. Now, I, what... what? No, no, I was going to say, um, I was going to ask you, what do you, how do you know you're reading a good story when you're reading one? I'm sure you've read a few scripts in your day. Yes, uh, the, the number count, it's hard to say how many, but it's well above 20,000. People find that hard to believe, but, but I, there's, there's no question that, you know, I have file cabinets filled to prove it of my reports <laughs> you know, that I've analyzed 20,000 stories at least. And... Um, you know, the, the elements uh, of the good one are, I'm a sucker for poetry and, and for, for just good writing. And I, I now I'm sort of ruined as a reader because I have low tolerance for bad writing. And I'm talking here about just the, how do you compose a sentence? And there's, <laughs> right. there, there, there's, there's, there are people who... Um, you know, they, they might be giving you good information. I'm reading a book about the city of Venice right now in Italy, and it's good information, but it's given in this very flat way. Venice was a big city in the 1400s. It was important, you know, and there's no music or poetry in that mm-hmm. at all. Um, but, but, but I appreciate so much the beautiful uh, writers. Now, screenplays are special. They're supposed to be very spare and simple and short sentences like that for the most part but mm-hmm. there's there's just a, a a confidence that that you feel when somebody knows how to how to build nice pretty sentences not uh, fancy but you know elegant so right. uh, that's I, I know this is very subtle and and hard to pin down what i'm saying but beyond that the simple thing for you know like what makes a good screenplay is man they grab you right away and you know right where you are and who it's about, uh, for the most part. Uh, they're very clear about this is the hero. 
I'm spending a little time describing her. Uh, I'm, I'm maybe uh, giving her some special behavior at the beginning that gets my attention. Why is she doing that? Uh, and that hooks me in. Uh, so, you know, there, there's... There are scripts you read 20 pages and you don't know who it's about and you don't know what it's about. And you don't know, you know, even, you know, is, is this the main location or is this a little prologue or, you know, the, there's a lack of clarity. So uh, I, I just like it when, when things are simple and clear. And that's a sort of a motto of mine from um, that classic old romantic comedy, It Happened One Night. Uh, Clark Gable. Oh, yeah, Clark reporter. Gable. Yeah, yeah, Clark Gable's a reporter in that, and his motto is simple stories for simple people. And it's not condescending. It's, it's a really good artistic rule. Just keep it simple. Tell me the story uh, and, uh, you know, make it elegant in, in, in language and so forth if you can. But, uh, you know, uh, be clear above, above all. It, it, that's another thing. I'd rather be clear than pretty in my writing and my storytelling. And pretty means, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, overly flowery. It can also mean, uh, look how cool I am. I'm not telling you who this guy is, and I'm going to make you wonder what's going on for a long time. Or I'm not going to tell you. You know, that sort of uh, razzle-dazzle is... uh, Or using 75-cent words when... Yes, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, Or... Another version of it is, uh, and then the camera using a Zeiss icon lens with a 35-millimeter <laughs> diopter on it moves gently right. down the corridor at about 3.6 miles per hour. And then, you know, this, this kind of over-directing is another, another version of it. Have you read, have you read, there, have you read scripts to have that kind of, I mean, I've, I've, I've never heard that distinctive, but have you read something like that? Yes, yeah, it does come up every once in a while, and I think it's generally from someone who isn't confident and hasn't done it very often before, and they're trying to prove, look, I know all this stuff. Uh, I took a class, or I read a book, or, uh, you know, I went to film school, and, you know, I, I myself, I think there was a, a little bit of that in some of my early scripts, because, you know, also people have a passion. They see it in their head so clear, they want to make sure it's down there on the page, but I learned right. better ways to do that uh, than to mm-hmm. say, uh, you know, you put, please put the camera on a tripod uh, about four feet off the ground, you know, not, in, not that, but, uh, you know, you, it, you indicate stuff like that by, uh, he looks up from under his eyebrows and uh, she sees a flash of light in his eyes. And mm-hmm. that gives you, that makes the shots in your mind better than saying with a tight close-up uh, just up from his eyebrows down to his nose. You don't have to do that. You just draw attention to the, the detail you want to see. The gun. That's know. a great note. Uh, so, so, and, and it is important, these things about the body, the hands, uh, skin, eyes, you know, re- referring to those in the text uh, it kind of creates the close-ups. You know, just just writing that in your uh, slug line, his hand near the gun. You know, is that's that's better than saying uh, a tight close-up or uh, that you see mm-hmm. it in your mind immediately. So, so you um, you worked at Disney for a while, correct? Yeah, that was I. I guess they, that was the longest run I had at any of the studios. Uh, I had. Mm-hmm two sort of like military tours of duty at Fox on either side mm-hmm. of that. 
uh, at Fox as a reader and then later as an executive. But in the middle was about 10 years at Disney. Okay. And that's a long run. In that's a long run. Yeah, your normal gig is about two years, uh, mm-hmm. honestly. People, people so you were doing something right. Jobs. Well, I was doing something right, but also within those 10 years, I worked for about four or five companies within Disney. So I kept mm-hmm. changing over, and as a new company was developed, like they created Touchstone, uh, mm-hmm. and Hyperion Pictures, and various other, and then there was um, Imagine Hollywood Pictures and Hollywood Pictures, and you know all these different divisions. And as each one was created, I would come in and write some memos and read some scripts for them, and uh, you know get get involved. And I was a little bit conscious of that, trying to diversify and get as much stuff into my uh, portfolio as as I could. And that's a sidebar here, but very important. A lot of my thinking and work these days is about branding. And Uh somehow, intuitively, I was good at that. And before the internet, I created a kind of viral marketing for myself through Uh means of... uh, the uh, Xerox machines and, you know, fax machines and stuff like that, uh, I spread a viral idea through the mind of Hollywood, which was this memo that I memo. wrote when I was, when I was at Disney. And uh, the memo simply took Campbell's academic idea and translated it into movie language. He talked about the epic of Gilgamesh or the fairy tale of the, the three shoes or something. And I would talk about, uh, you know, here it is in Ordinary People and Star Wars and various other uh, classic films. So uh, I, I even read that as a film student. I read that memo. That's how far that memo went. I was in Florida, and I heard about this memo that said this is, uh-huh. the, this is the, the guidebook, the blueprint of all story. And, of course, as a film student, you, you're like, oh, my God, I have to read this. And it would circulate around the school. And, and then, I, I, I mean – so you did a good job without email, without internet, you were able to create a viral piece of material that branded you completely. Yeah. It, I went out and got your book. It definitely did. Uh, and I have a, another uh, thought about the branding, which is that branding is really a matter of association. You're associating yourself with different things like Coke. One of their mottos was Coke adds life. So they, they say, Coke equals life, and whatever you know about life, whatever you like about life, you, there it is in Coke. So, uh, and I, arguably, they take arguably Coke takes away life, but we we talk about that later. Is that true? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's it, certainly if you want to kill something, let it swim in Coke for a while. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, if if you want to take chrome off your bumper, that uh, that's another. Uh, it'll, it'll it'll eat the chrome right off. But uh, oh yeah, it it's. Uh, uh, this uh, matter of the uh, where were we? This is uh, branding. Branding on the branding thing is is uh, that yeah somehow I was able to do that and and brand myself with this thing because um, it was almost like something that just popped into my head when I was standing mm-hmm. at the Xerox machine. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I had written this memo. Uh, and I, I said, you can sort of tr- load this up with intention. 
And uh, I even left a copy of it on the Xerox machine, on the glass, uh, mm-hmm. intentionally, thinking the next person coming along may find this, and who knows what they'll do with it. Well, let's see. Let's see where that goes. Wow. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think what happened was uh, an executive came in, copied something, and found that and plagiarized it. He took my mm-hmm. my name off. He put his name on the cover and sent it up through the company ranks because he thought it was good. And uh, it got to the top guy in the company, Jeff Katzenberg, and uh, uh, he said, "This is great. This is uh, this is the greatest thing that's happened since popcorn." And you know, all our movies and our animation should uh, everybody should read this. And Eventually, you got credit though. Yeah, I I claimed credit, which is a little out of my character. I'm kind of shy and retiring, but. Uh, I attacked that one. When I heard that this had happened, I wrote a letter to Katzenberg, and I, I claimed it. And I said, N- I, the word's gotten out that this memo is on your desk, and uh, I wrote it, and not this other guy. And uh, I want something. I asked for something, which is uh, I wanted more involvement in the company. And he immediately responded to my amazement and uh, threw me together with the animation people. And that was kind of the, the high point of my involvement with Disney. They were just starting Lion King, and uh, I went over there to talk with the animators and writers, and uh, I thought, okay, now I have to do a sales job, and I have to explain who I am, and I have to tell them what the hero's journey is. But I walked in the door, and the first thing I saw was a uh, corkboard with the storyboard of the Lion King, and it was all mapped out by the hero's journey. Step one, step two, step three. Really? My memo. The memo got there ahead of me, and with me doing nothing, it did a complete sales job for me and, and, and just rolled out the red carpet. So I walked in, and they knew exactly who I was and what my idea was. And now, arguably, that, Lion King was, for, me, for well over a decade, if not... Oh, 20 years, it was the biggest animated movie ever, financially. Yes, it was. Uh, I, must, I must tell you a bit of a surprise to all of us, uh, who not all of us, but many of us who worked on it, because Disney had been on this rocket ship in live oh, action, God, yeah. and then they had a couple of, uh, you know, they made, they made 20 live action films in a row that were hits, and nobody does that. Uh, no, so there right. was something bizarre going on. Um, and then they had made uh, Beauty and the Beast. Little Mermaid, uh, Beauty and the Beast. And, Mermaid, yeah. and those, those, those were so good and so revolutionary, they completely revived things. We all kind of felt like, well, the Lion King will take a step back and it'll just be another picture. And, and it, <laughs> it, you know, it's right. not going to stand up. You, know, you can't keep going like that, hit after hit. So you, you almost hope that one of them will drop back a little and lower expectations. And then you'll come back and, you know, try to top yourself. But that would, that would have been probably Pocahontas, not Lion King. Yeah, maybe so, yeah. <laughs> one, of those, one of those that uh, followed in the chain. But, uh, right, right. You know, it, it, uh, it surprised us all. Uh, I, I, I remember seeing the, uh, the screening, the opening night. Uh, they had a mm-hmm. big party, you know, and uh, we enjoyed all that. But the, the applause when the movie was over was kind of, <laughs> well, that was good, you know, which is true for almost all Hollywood 
screenings, you know. Uh, every single one of them, absolutely, you're correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you go, ah, that wasn't too bad. But, uh, right. <laughs> uh, but well, we underestimated the way it would connect around the world. And I've heard that everywhere in every culture, that people say, that's a Japanese story, you know, or that's an mm-hmm. obviously African, but, you know, every mm-hmm. culture relates somehow. So they, they did something right. Uh, and I, I had my little part in it. Yeah, I just I had a uh, a little story about that opening uh, sequence, the Circle of Life sequence. Uh, they had fully mm-hmm. animated that by the time I got there, and they showed me that sequence uh, the first time I I met with them. And then the rest of it was either in pencil sketch form or actual post-it notes on the corkboard uh, storyboard style. Um, but my reaction to it was um, there's something missing. And the okay. missing thing was when Rafiki, who's the kind of the mentor of the story, the kind of magical guy, when he holds up the baby Simba and he shows everybody, I said, wouldn't it be cool if those big clouds up there suddenly opened up and a shaft of light came down and lit up the baby? And everybody in the room wrote that down and started drawing pictures of it because the animators <laughs> communicate Right. And uh, instead of writing notes down, they draw pictures. So everybody drew that, and they they stopped the production and put that piece in, um, which was a big, expensive deal, but they said it, it was worth it. Um, mm-hmm. And that makes the little button on the scene. It's this one little thing, and there's a exactly right place in the music where the music kind of explodes uh, as the baby mm-hmm. lion is held up, uh, and that shaft of light just punches it so uh oh, absolutely. It, it makes the scene it honestly with no, no question about it i still remember when you were saying it i see it so clearly in my head it's like how could you not have that <laughs> yeah yeah and and it was like it was all invited and set up by what they had done already but that's that one little piece uh kind of nailed it and um the, the i saw a physiological reaction in everyone in the room when i just said what if the shaft of light comes down and I paused a minute, and I mm-hmm. noticed everybody's, they're like shivering and quivering and kind of moving around in their seats, and then started furiously drawing that, that image. So uh, it told me something, and that's very important to me, is that it, the story or the good ideas <clears throat> actually reach into your body, and they do something. They, they, they cause organs in the body to react and secrete fluids and mm-hmm. make you shiver and make your hair stand on end and make you cry and do all these other physical things to you. Uh, so that, that's a big part of my thinking now is the, what I call uh, the uh, organic storytelling, that it's in the organs of the body where the story is mm-hmm. actually, actually happening. That your brain is you know, processing and thinking and comparing, but uh, the, the direct experience is right there in your heart and your lungs and you know, your guts. And also, like, uh, we, we talk a lot about story structure and, and the hero's journey and everything like that for actual movies, but there is a part of that that goes through the marketing of it, too, to create a storytelling process of the marketing. And uh, two movies recently that have done that amazingly well was obviously the Star Wars movie was probably one of the best marketed movies I've seen in, in, in a long time. And Deadpool, another amazingly marketed uh-huh. yes. film. Um, yes. Can you touch a little bit on that and how story played a part in those two campaigns? 
Yes, um, that's something I'm very interested in. I've done work uh, with companies that do trailers for movies and uh, done a lot of uh, thinking about about how they connect. And um, you know, it, it's it's something in, in the first case, in the Star Wars case, they're dealing with what you know. And the objective here was to say, uh, you knew this, but you didn't know this. And so there are little things like uh, there's the sort of iconic shot of the current villain uh, with his lightsaber, where the, 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 the side flames mm-hmm. come out, uh, where mm-hmm. he sort of flicks, flicks it on. And uh, that was like, oh, this is telling you, it's plussing this. It's telling you this is going to be the Star Wars you love, but with some new twists and uh, right. a, a simple thing but something also a little controversial got people talking about what does that mean and that doesn't even look realistic and possible and so uh, that all right. worked very well for them and with, with Deadpool that's just a, a brilliant job of projecting a voice uh, it, it was it was all about the voice and the kind of iconic look of the character in his reclining lazy position uh, mm-hmm. Those, those two things together made a, a real strong campaign. And opposed to the Batman versus Superman campaign, which told you, I, from what I hear, I haven't seen the movie yet, but it told you the entire story. It showed you all the, the, the points, the big, the big moments already have been given away in the trailer, which is, I think, what, they had such a potential to do a Star Wars. If they had the confidence, I think that was the big difference. I think yeah. the studio behind you know, with Star Wars, there was a confidence with the marketing. They're like, look, we're just going to just give you just enough to get you excited. And that's what brought everybody out. And with a story like Batman versus Superman, which is obviously like, you know, the fight of the, of the century, they could have done that, but they didn't. They yeah. went the complete traditional old school. Let's show them all in the trailer. And let's see if we can get some butts and seats on the first opening weekend. Um, do do and I don't want to get. I know you. I know you, these are some of your clients, so feel free to, to say no comment. <laughs> no, no, it's it's uh, it's fine. I, I these are observations I've had anyway. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, a, a matter of is choice about it, uh, and and this particular technique of telling you everything and giving you all the plot beats was really worked out at Disney, and it was part of their success for a while that that they they were reassuring you uh, this movie with you know Richard Dreyfuss or Bette Midler whoever it was they were putting in movies in those days back in the 80s mm-hmm. we're talking now uh, they would they would lay out okay then he's he's in his ordinary world and then he's going to go to the special world and it's going to be weird and funny things will happen but dangerous things and then at the end with the, through the love of a good woman he'll figure it out uh, and and right. that worked for a while but then people really rejected that and as you say, it's mm-hmm. become uh, a, a safety. It's a uh, you know uh, a default way to do it, and it's so much better when you really know what you have to sell. Uh, I was impressed by one campaign in the last uh, couple of years for Maleficent. Uh, the movie mm-hmm. looks back at Sleeping Beauty and does it tells the story from more or less the villain's point of view. Uh, they knew what mm-hmm. they had to sell. Angelina Jolie with the weird black horns and costume, and they just sold that. You know, that was their game. And, and so, you know, I think that's the, the ticket is 
you have to know what it is you have to sell. And sometimes it is the story, uh, or, or it's a new voice or new character. You still there? So I'm going to ask you... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go no, ahead. I was going to ask you the, the same questions I ask of all of my guests. Uh, these sure. are the toughest questions, so uh, please be prepared. <laughs> what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? The longest to learn, uh, I guess that would be something I'm still dealing with. Um, and uh, in, in, in that department, um, I, I would say, honestly, it's getting out of my own way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still learning that that uh, I tend to do things the hard way and uh, make things hard for myself and uh, uh, make more of the difficulties than they, they need to be. So uh, that's, that's a, been a slow lesson for me uh, that I, I kind of sum up by uh, something I call, it's not my idea, but the do-easy method. Uh, if you're interested mm-hmm. in this, it's it's something that was cooked up by the writer William Burroughs to deal with difficulties in his life. But uh, you, you just sort of approach everything very gently. And, uh, you know, where computers maybe drive you crazy and you want to throw things, there's a way to caress them so that it isn't so uh, difficult and, and painful. And uh, I'm, I'm not a master of this by any means, but uh, that has helped me. So that, that's and you're still going through your hero's journey in regards to that. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> so what are your life. top three? <laughs> exactly. Right. So what are your top three favorite films uh, of all time? No order or anything like that. Just three films that really touched you. Well, sure. I, I, I always start with my Desert Island movie. If uh, denied all other films, what would be the one? Uh, and for many years, this has been... Uh, a movie from the 50s called The Vikings, uh, which is really the source material or, or uh, very close to the current Vikings TV series that's on the History Channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're really drawn from the same literary source, the same historical character. It's the same idea. Um, mm-hmm. It's a great adventure movie with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis and Ernest Borgnine and Jack right. Lee and, you know, amazing... Uh, effects and beautiful ships and all that. Uh, number two uh, would be um, a movie called uh, Gilda, uh, which is a, a oh yeah black black That's and an white. older one. Um, and um, it's just a, a special film to me because it's a film noir. It's about a, a triangle of an evil guy and a woman who's associated with him and a young man who used to be her, her lover and, you know, the, the loyalties among all those three people. Um, but it's much more profound than that. Uh, it's kind of an essay on good and evil and the devil and God and uh, uh, just profound kind of uh, movie. And uh, mm-hmm. then out, out, a little more modern thing, uh, is a film I'm working with right now. I'm getting ready for a lecture in Paris, and I had to do a French film. So I picked a film called Amour, which won the Academy Award a few years ago for Best Foreign Film. And it's mm-hmm. about uh, an old Parisian couple, and the wife has a stroke, and she eventually declines, and uh, they have to deal with uh, her complete uh, downfall as a person. Very uplifting and, story. Got it. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, but uh, just beautifully made and a great example of uh, simple stories for simple people in, in the best way. Uh, very confident. You mentioned that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, that confidence in filmmakers and storytellers is uh, really nice when you have it, and this guy's very confident. He does a lot mm-hmm. of things where he, he'll just have a black screen, and maybe you'll hear uh, people say, are you okay? And the other one says, yeah, I'm all right. No, there's no problem. And they're in bed asleep, and he'll just let that mm-hmm. black scene run for almost a minute, uh, and, and you just kind of breathe and live with it, and boy, that takes confidence. But he's got mm-hmm. And uh, what is the most underrated film you've ever seen? Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I go to a, a film that's actually kind of hard to find uh, called They Might Be Giants with uh, okay. George C. Scott and uh, Anne Bancroft, I think, is, is in it. And it's um, a play on Sherlock Holmes. It's about a crazy man in New York who thinks he's Sherlock Holmes. And uh, they send a, a social worker to visit him, and her name happens to be Dr. Watson. So uh, he goes, well, there is, I've been waiting for you. you know. And she goes, but this is all a delusion. And eventually they get she gets lured into it and realizes he is really the latest incarnation of Sherlock Holmes, or he believes it so much that let's just accept that. And there really is like a Moriarty, a bad guy who's doing things. And uh, they, they rally oddball. All the oddball people in New York are rallied behind them to stand up to this shadow of uh, Moriarty. And it's a wonderful, inspiring film. For some reason, that one's not in a lot of packages and it didn't get sold and it's hard to find. Uh, but, uh, Got it. It, it, it's a little treasure. Um, now where can people find you? Uh, the best thing would be my website, which is, uh, dot And I also have a blog, uh, at WordPress, and uh, that is Chris Vogler's Writer's Journey blog. I don't... Uh, okay, and can you tell the people... Uh, yes. And can you tell, the, can you tell the, the, um, the tribe what books you've actually written besides the Writer's Journey or, or the... Because I know you've written a few books, correct? Well, I have... Yeah, actually, uh, I'm, I'm building a little library. Uh, I wrote, uh, you know, the, the first book, The Hero's Journey, 20 years ago. Uh, then a few years back, I co-wrote a book with uh, a, a buddy of mine who's a film director and teacher in New York named David McKenna, and that book is called Memo from the Story Department, and it's about the oh, so awesome. structure and character. Memo from the Story Department. Okay. And my original memo to Disney uh, is in that, uh, about the hero's journey, but also all the other stuff that David and I have used uh, in our, our work over the years, other frames, other, uh, other systems, like there's a, a, a fairy tale analysis uh, technique, uh, there's uh, a way of looking at characters that goes all the way back to the days of Aristotle, uh, there's uh, uh, a chapter on vaudeville and, and how the traditions of the stage are still useful for filmmakers today, so it's it's good that way. And then the third thing, um, the title that uh, 
I, I can claim is I wrote a Japanese manga, you know, their version of a comic. Wow. And, uh, sure. Uh, a, a buddy of mine uh, got into the business of, of uh, publishing in, uh, in, in America and Japan, and uh, he invited me to contribute a story, and so uh, I got one out of the trunk. Uh, I took an old movie and novel called Ivanhoe about uh, the time of King Richard and the Crusaders and uh, Robin Hood, and I wrote uh, kind of a sequel to it. Uh, called Raven the Skull. So that's the title, Raven the Skull. And uh, it was supposed to be a four-book series. We only did the first one so far, but uh, uh, it's uh, it was really fun to work with an artist in the Philippines, this guy. Uh, mm-hmm. this, and, and, and the editor never met him. I never met him. But we did everything by JPEGs back and forth. Uh, you know, I mm-hmm. would say, I want the... I want the stirrups to look like this, and I want the sword handle to look like this, and I'd send him the uh, the images, and uh, and man, it would just come back the next day exactly like I wanted, and it was a great way to work. So uh, there's my... there's another book um, that you wrote the forward for that actually yeah. was the reason I bought the book was because you wrote the forward to it was Myth and the Movies. Yes, uh, that that's kind of a, a, a another uh, relative of of my books. It's in the family. Uh, a man mm-hmm. named Stuart Voitilla took on a, a, an important job. I'm glad he did it because it was a lot of labor to do it. But what he did in Myth in the Movies is he said, "Okay, here's Vogler's idea. How does that actually work? What is if you do the diagram? What does it look like?" He was doing like pie charts of the of the different steps. And what does it look like in 50 different films? And he chose really good classics in different genres. And he shows there that it changes depending on the genre and that they spend more Mm -hmm. or less time in different stages and maybe omit stages or repeat them or something. He he found all these neat patterns, um, uh, sort of subcategories within the, the general thing. And he said it still works. Uh, in all these films, but it it's flexible, and so you'll you'll find the the uh, specifics in in mainly by genre in adventure movies, romances, uh, mysteries, and so forth. Uh, he he found these these shadings of it, and, and it's a great contribution. So, uh, Chris, it, Chris, I have to say it's been an absolute joy uh, talking to you today. Thank you so much for uh, taking out the time and and dropping a lot of value bombs. On uh, on the audience in regards to structure. <laughs> Kaboom! Yeah, so uh, I'm glad to do that, and you let me uh, run free, and I appreciate that. And you had good questions, so uh, I hope everybody uh, just uh, keeps in mind my motto, which is trust the path. Trust the path that you're on. Keep going till you get there, and uh, uh, that that has its own uh, guidance system built in. So uh, good luck. Thanks, Chris. And uh, all right, so now, Chris, we're out. Um, thanks again so much. I really do appreciate you taking out the time. I know it's been, I know you're squeezing me in right before your Paris trip, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I have to keep an eye on that ball, but uh, I'm going to be working on that Amour film I talked about uh, today. Mm-hmm. So, uh, buttoning up my clips on that, but uh, this is great, and uh, I wish you luck with your. Uh, in in the film hustle, you got a pretty good uh, list of people uh, on this now. And, uh, yeah, Linda. Linda says hi. I, said, I did Linda, and of course Michael. That's great. Um, mm-hmm. And we and and you know that we, you know, Michael and I have been doing that whole um, the heroes two journeys 
um, right. course, uh, the digital mm-hmm. course. So, seeing it, see, so hopefully this will help a little bit with sales with that and mm-hmm. and move forward. So, Chris, thank you again so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute thrill talking to you, my friend. All right. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Alex. You know, I can't really tell you what a thrill it was to talk to Chris. I mean, after after reading his book and how what an impact that book made on me. Uh, if you guys have not read that book, you got to go out and get it. Uh, Writer's Journey, uh, and you can get all that, and you can get the links to his books, uh, the course, and, and all his direct uh, websites and stuff like that at uh, indiefilmhustle.com forward slash zero sixty one. So a lot of you guys in the tribe actually email me a lot of questions and specifically certain things about different parts of the, the, the business. And I do my best to answer them, but I had this idea of creating an episode a week, at least one episode a week, I'm going to try, of just answering questions, of just answering straight questions from the tribe. So I wanted to, and I'm going to call it Ask Alex. I know it's extremely creative, but we're going to try to do this uh, once a week. And we're going to create a YouTube show around it so uh, you can watch me answer the questions. And then I'll also be releasing it on on the video podcast as well as the regular podcast as well. So want to try to get more value to you guys. And this is a community. So uh, and this is our tribe. So everybody talking, you know, asking me questions. It might be a question that somebody else has that they haven't asked it to me, but this other person did. And if I can answer it for everyone, maybe I can help more and more people. So that's the goal of what we do, what I do here at Indie Film Hustles. I want to try to provide as much value to you guys as possible. So if you have any questions, email me at askalex at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's askalex at IndieFilmHustle.com. And uh, we're going to create a website as well. Uh, that would be IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash askalex. So you can be able to go straight there and hopefully we'll have uh, episodes every week on me answering questions for you guys. So uh, I'll be launching that in the next, probably within the next month or so, but Please send in those questions and, uh, you know, anything about the film industry, uh, film business, film marketing, post-production, whatever you want me to answer, I'll do the best I can to answer those questions for you guys and provide uh, good value to you guys, all right? So, again, that's askalex at IndieFilmHustle.com, and the website is going to be IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash askalex. So thanks, as always, for listening, guys, and don't forget to head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com and leave us a great, hopefully a wonderful review for the show. It helps us get the word out on what we're doing uh, with Indie Film Hustle and help more filmmakers out there, okay? By the way, uh, I wanted to give you guys an update on something. A few weeks ago, I mentioned and launched, basically announced that I was doing a feature film called Anya. Uh, Well, that has now changed. I have shifted into another project. Uh, That project didn't uh, work out the way I wanted it to work out, so... I decided to just shift and move to another project. So I'm working currently working on another feature film right now and we'll be announcing what that feature film will be in the coming uh, weeks uh, and possibly the next month or two because I'm working hard on it right now and getting a bunch of stuff labeled out. But there will be a feature film made by me and the Indie Film Hustle gang uh, sometime this year regardless of what that movie is. So uh, I have a lot of exciting stuff coming up uh, as well, guys. Uh, I I mean, a tremendous amount of exciting news, exciting things I'm going to be bringing to you guys, and exclusive courses, exclusive topics, exclusive projects, all sorts of different things that 
that I'm going to be bringing to you guys to help you further along on your quest to be a working filmmaker and to survive and thrive in the film business. So as always, guys, thanks for all your support. I can't do this out. I can't do this without you guys. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please share these episodes. Please share our links when you see them on Facebook and Twitter uh, and in, in the blogosphere. Just help us and get the word out. All right. I really appreciate everything you guys do. So keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.